Hello, this is Lowell Thompson with Learning with Lowell, a podcast that covers healthcare, biotech, anything science-related, really, or anything that really fascinates me. I'm open to input on that. Any suggestions or advice, send them my way. Go to learningwithlowell.com and subscribe today. Today we have John, a man who's going to discuss drug development, the general costs, that type of thing, everything about drug development we're going to get into, his interests, his background. You're going to see one person's drive for success his knowledge he's getting a phd and he's going to be starting a biotech company so let's watch him grow let's open this up with kind of you talking about yourself um what what's a little bit about your your background and um uh, yeah, like uh, the t- the type of schooling you've gone to, like that type of thing. Sure. Yeah. Um, my dad's a, a chemist, so I've always been interested in science. It's always been around me. So I always knew I was going to be a scientist. Um, all through high school, loved chemistry and physics the most and went into college and I just really couldn't decide um, between chemistry, physics, engineering basically it was a roll of the dice and i ended up in in chemistry i really like drug development mm-hmm. um but i also really liked a lot of other stuff i like neurology i like uh renewable energies but chemistry was where the uh the dice landed and got my bachelor's and i didn't really want to get into the whole corporate life yet so i decided to go for a phd Um, but ironically, I liked drug development, but I didn't want to be in a lab where I'm, I'm (laughs) killing, uh, lab rats all day. So I didn't want, I didn't want that aspect, but I still wanted to do the whole drug development. So I looked for actually, um, uh, in plant sciences. So I ended up joining a lab where we're making synthetic versions of plant hormones Mm -hmm. and basically looking at the biology there and that was you know five years of my life and that finished in July 2017 and then I, I've got uh, a postdoc here in Missouri at Washington University now actually doing drug development with the unfortunate uh, side effect of testing on mice and whatever but comes with the uh, comes with the field mm-hmm. talking about uh Drug development, I think that's kind of one of those things that I think a lot of people don't understand. How, from like A to Z, or as well as you can kind of explain it, like how does how does a drug go from, you know, concept to that long process of becoming something that can help people? Yeah, um, that is such a loaded question. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We, uh... we can break it down into the parts that you particularly are enjoying or that are particularly something that you think is noteworthy because yeah. yeah. I know that this is a huge question. Yeah. From a really broad perspective, how it usually, um, how it usually occurs is you have people who are, who are studying diseases and you know, you have the symptoms of some disease, um, and people want to understand basically how that disease, why that those symptoms are occurring. What is actually going on in the body to produce those symptoms and so that 
that's all biology and they go through all kinds of assays to eventually they usually want to either find a protein or uh, a gene that's that's being misregulated or dysregulated or mutated in some way. Um, so it's basically like they have this giant swath of data and they're trying to narrow it down to a small point as possible. And that usually ends up being a protein or a gene that's, that's misbehaving. Once you have that, then you have, um, okay, do we want to activate this gene more, activate this protein more, or is it being overexpressed and we, we need to knock it down, um, minimize its impact. Um, so then that's where the drug development comes in and that comes with, uh, you know, small molecules. So if you have something that binds to that protein and inactivates it, that would be good if that protein is too active in the disease. Um, and then that's where my work is. I work on small molecules. So, um, we're looking at, we actually generally have, uh, the idea of what the protein is. And in the best case scenarios, we actually have 3D crystal structures of what these proteins look like. And in a very basic analogy, uh, we see these proteins as basically giant locks. And we're trying to get a key that fits into that protein mm -hmm. and uh, potentially fits into a place of that lock that's an active site that's actually doing some enzymatic process. And if we lock something in there, lock our key within the lock, so to speak, then it, it stops that protein from being active. So that is most drug development. That's how most drug development works. Most diseases have some protein that is um, overactive, or if you knock down a protein, then it reduces your symptoms. Mm -hmm. So um, most drug development is aimed at uh, uh, protein inhibitors. So that's a really uh, uh, very basic, broad uh, perspective of how how I would get into um, involvement in drug development. And once we have like a, a, a drug in hand, that's usually, it's rarely ever um, the end of the story. You, you're going to have problems with bioavailability. You're going to have problems with um, how long it stays in the body. Um, and depending on what the target is, maybe you end up actually, you know, your key ends up actually being a skeleton key and starts interacting with all kinds of different proteins doing all kinds of stuff. And that's, you know, potentially toxic or even lethal or fatal or other kinds of things you don't want. So there's a lot of optimization that comes after that. And that really requires a lot of collaboration between, um, the actual drug developers, chemists in my case, or, um, people who are making antibodies and then the actual, uh, biologists who are testing those and looking for the, the different symptoms that come up. Thank you. I, I so think that would be mine. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that was, that was good. I, I take some, uh, I, I read a lot about this, so I'm always trying to learn more. If you, when it comes to like, kind of like building the team out for going through the process of creating a drug, like, uh -huh. you know, you got, you have the chemist, you have yourself, like who, 
who's the rest of the, the team you need to like be highly effective, if that makes sense. Yeah, if you're, I mean, so I'm, I'm not in, I haven't had much experience in uh, industry or mm-hmm. the startup environment. I've, most of my experience is in academia, so it's quite a bit different. In academia, you just, you really want uh, good collaborators, and in a lot of academia, they're very, they might be in a different state, which is not what you'd want in industry at all. You want to be in ideally the same room or the same building. Mm-hmm. Um, but to have a very effective team in regards for, to drug development, you need people who have um, experience, um, but you also you really need people who are, are interested in what they're doing and have a motivation and, and are enthusiastic about their portion of the project. So if you have a chemist who's really good at chemistry um, and they're, they're excited about the final target, they're going to have the ambition to go uh, above and beyond just, you know, making a bunch of analogs of one compound. They're going to go and, and read a bunch of the literature and look at perhaps novel connections between what's already been done and what you guys are looking for together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you need the biologist uh, who... Um, in a lot of these these very new drugs, very new settings, you need to come up with new assays. How do you uh, make a mouse model or some other kind of cell model mimic what's actually happening in the real world? Mm-hmm. And that is that is exceptionally difficult. Actually, assay development is a very um, very uh, critical thinking intensive role. And I mean, if you go and look for uh, um, positions with the title of assay development biology, they're littered all over the place. It's kind of in in uh, uh, orphan drug diseases. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like the IT developer and programmer. Um, there's a huge shortage in that regard, and it you can't just be a a good assay developer right out of, you know, getting your bachelor's or PhD. It requires experience. Um, and then you need a manager, somebody who's, who's very in touch with, um, what kind of experiments and ultimately how much time each experiment should take as well as, you know, how much money, Mm -hmm. um, because in academia, there's not really uh, you don't have the need to be profitable. Um, so if you have a curiosity, you can go ahead and spend you know a couple months trying to figure that out, and then you can write a paper on it. But in industry, um, you really have to stay focused. You need the end goal of of one drug that does what you guys want it to do. So you need someone to kind of steer the team and make sure you're not just uh, chasing a carrot on a stick or something. Talking about... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, yeah, sure. Talk, talking about assay developer type people and that it's one of the things that is in, in high demand. Like what can, you know, someone listening to this or, or someone who would find that very interesting, how would someone gain that type of experience or like what type of skills should they look to develop so they would be successful in that, in asset uh-huh. development? Does that, if that makes sense? 
Yeah, assay development, um, it's really about, uh, it's not It's not my background. I thought I could do assay development, and then I realized, no, I definitely, that is not, I would have to go back to school. I think you definitely will need a PhD um, unless you were lucky enough to uh, enter into a team of assay development and, you know, have maybe five to eight years experience, but you would probably need a PhD to consider assay development. Um, and then really what you want to do is join a lab that's on the front running, uh, doing, um, research in diseases that are brand new or, um, researching brand new technologies like, um, CAR-T technologies are now a very huge thing in biotech, and gene therapy is a huge thing in biotech. Um, join a lab that's researching those, and then once you have these questions of, does this drug work, you have to answer, well, how can we answer that question? That's where the assay developer comes in. Mm -hmm. And so you want to look at, you really have to be at the bleeding edge of uh, looking at either new technologies for diseases or really under under um, research uh, diseases that most people haven't been looking at, which are usually orphan diseases. Speaking of orphan diseases, for people who are unaware of what that term is, what what is that in a in a as layman's of a way possible? Yeah. So it it really comes down to the amount of people that have it. Um, and in general, the, the reason that that term exists is because, uh, most drug development isn't funded federally. It's, it's funded privately. Mm -hmm. So a company has to be profitable, um, if they want to do drug development. And in order to be profitable, uh, there has to be a certain, uh, amount of people that can sell their drug to. Mm -hmm. Because the, the research and development is going to be the same cost if you're making, um, in general, I mean, it's going to vary from drug to drug, but in general, it doesn't matter if you're going to be treating 10 people um, or 10 million people. You still have to go through all the FDA uh, clearances. You have to go through all the R&D costs, and those are, you know, tens to hundreds of millions of dollars. Some people even quote it upwards of a billion but the the so the orphan drug diseases are usually diseases that are perceived as uneconomically feasible for a company to pursue because the market's too small and so generally there hasn't been much research uh, from the industry side in those so there's generally a lack of research uh, in regards to those so in some cases, and I think more and more, the, the federal government is trying to make competition in that realm better, and you're seeing more and more companies pursue that. So it's definitely picking up, and I think that's a good thing both um, from the science side as well as patients, of course. Mm -hmm. I think I was uh, reading an article recently that there was there's more... Uh like rare orphan type diseases than there are like normal, like uh, not normal, but like uh, the typical type that most people think about. There's like 
8,000 diseases that affect like a thousand people or like, right. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's interesting yeah. to think about like how much variance there is and, and the type of things that are affecting everyone. You talk about how it's kind of a, a long process and how you, you, when you're looking for a team or, or in yourself that you want to be on a project that you're passionate about because it like kind of carries you through um, mm-hmm. talking about like these, you know, kind of like a marathon thing that you're going through to get a drug developed. What are the, what are the things that you do to keep yourself going, you know, on the, on the days where it's, you know, maybe things aren't turning up pretty well, or it's, you know, just, you know, a bad day or something like that. Like, how do you, you know, keep chugging along and, and keeping that passion going? Yeah. Um, well, especially the research and development stage where I'm primarily in, uh, it never, there's never like a, an end to it. There's never a, you can never get a result that says, okay, this is done. We can't do anything because there's always going to be more ideas. There's always going to be um, new possibilities that you can pursue. Um, that gets that leeway gets thinner and thinner the more uh, farther out you get. Sorry, someone might need to use this room. I'm still at work, um, but the the farther and farther in, into the development you get, the the more and more actually uh, less, sorry, less and less movement you get uh, from possibilities of, of failure or otherwise. You can't really change a topic once you're in a phase two trial or something. Mm-hmm. But with that, then you get closer and closer to the final finish line. So your, your motivation um, shifts from possibilities and you know novel discoveries to actually reaching the end goal so there's always a driver whether it be the actual science and getting results and you know um getting this whole uh large pathway of development paved out because that's exciting in itself Mm -hmm. versus once you're more developed and you get into those clinical trials you're really like where you're getting close to the finish line you're getting close to the ultimate goal of getting this drug into patients and, and helping uh, change lives. You study this extensively. Do you, do you find yourself recommending books that cover this topic very well? Or is it, or are there books that cover this topic in, in, in an interesting way that like um, an average Joe or someone interested could like pick up and kind of understand? Um, personally, I don't have any very relevant recommendations. I know there's, um, uh, yeah, most of what I end up reading is basically statistics on, uh, clinical trial passes and failures. I think really what, uh, the major, uh, kind of literature you'd want to read is more about leadership and team building. And, um, in the VC space and the entrepreneurship space, those are going to be applicable, um, but unfortunately, I don't know anything that's that's particular to biotech. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's uh, I sh- I should look that up for myself. <laughs> I should get some book. Uh, oh, I was just reading recently that I was reading a book called Gene. Uh, he's mm-hmm. he did a the Emperor of All Maladies about cancer as well. I, I, okay. I'm blanking on the name. It's it's really good, but he talks about how. 
like the biotech industry is basically only like 40 years old. You know, how, yeah. like it's such a, it's interesting to think how big of an impact an industry that's only 40 years old is having on people's lives. So it's, it's just, right. it's just fascinating. Um, I, if you haven't read that book, I definitely recommend it. They, they go into a little bit of like the, the startup process and how like a guy just kind of like took a gamble and it really worked out and they made a gen tech. I think it was like, the Oh, first gen real, tech, yeah. yeah. yeah no, it's, it's just a, it really like just fascinating to learn about the history of biotech. Cause like yeah. when I think about it, I think, Oh, it's, you know, probably a couple hundred years old, you know, very developed. And it's like, Nope. In the seventies, <laughs> you, yeah. you know, my dad's time. Yeah. And, um, thinking of, of books that I could recommend you that are either in the leisure space or the biotech because I'm, I'm constantly trying to pick up new things. Um, I think uh, Duodna, Dr. Duodna, the, the lady who was on the team that came out with CRISPR, she, her book was uh-huh. pretty good at going through the process of how she kind of like discovered it or like, you know, kind of broke through it. I think that would be one that I'd recommend. And I think there's a book about Watson and Crick where they go through how they found um, the double helix, if I remember that correctly. And they go through like kind of how like they like explored and like figured it out. But yeah, I, I can link those to you later if, if that interests yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, the biotech is um, ironically young. Uh, the, I mean, pharmaceuticals go back, you know, the better part of a, a century. But biotech itself, and and really getting beyond just um, really broadly active small molecules, it's relatively new, and we're kind of we're we're moving past even biotech now where, where biotech was the past 40 years. And now we're getting into, um, kind of second generation biotech where we're, we're using our own, uh, our own genes such as CAR T and we're going to see the dawn of, of, um, gene therapy pretty soon as well. So yeah, we're, by the time biotech, we really have a solid grasp of biotech. We're going to get into uh, what some people consider as the next wave of biotech gene therapies and, and autologous or autonomous stem cells and stuff. Autonomous stem cells? I, have, I don't think I've heard that before. What, what's that? Or what are those? So that's, that's taking the potentially your own cells. Um, most of the work right now is done in types of blood cancers or um, blood uh, diseases. And then they're taking the patient's own blood cells, reverse engineering them back into stem cells, and then giving them back to the patients after they do some kind of modifications. Um, so that's, again, on the bleeding edge. There's you know no approved drugs in that realm, but there are quite a few companies pursuing it, spearheading it. Um, which I, I think is great. I think a lot of these companies, uh, from an investor standpoint, people kind of say, this is way too risky. There's no way this is going to work. But if there isn't that company, that group of people doing that, we're never going to get there. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I always think of ROI, you know, like re- re- return on investment. Um, I think biotech mm-hmm. has the greatest potential for ROI that you can have when you make you know, if you're successful, you make a meaningful contribution to people's lives, you know, improving the quality of life, um, giving them opportunities that they wouldn't have before. I think like right. that return on investment, like whatever that is, I think that's just, it's significant, you know, from a human standpoint. And, you know, like we have this orphan drug status now that we're, you know, like you were talking about, 
how the government's trying to make it easier to, you know, make money so you can keep doing more research and helping more people. So it's, I, I think that's just a great thing. And then in and of itself that like biotech has such a incredible ROI on raising the tide, so to speak, and helping out like a variety of people, like helping out everyone. Because if you help out a, yeah. you know, a group of people that are suffering, then they're not suffering, then they're producing or, you know, contributing to the economy or, or society. Or maybe they they even get into clinical research and they help out another person. It's like just an, an incredible field. And, you know, like we've been saying, like 40 years, you know, pretty much. And, you know, yeah. I didn't I didn't um, I didn't know that it was being kind of like termed as like the second generation with this new genetic stuff that's coming out. But you're right. Like that is it's fascinating like the, the things that we're going to be able to do. Um, I don't know how, how quickly it'll come out. Um, but it, it'll, it'll, if, if, if anyone wants to learn more about like the genetic engineering in general, read the, the gene book that I, rec- I mentioned earlier, I'll put in the show notes because it, he goes through from like, from the beginning <laughs> all the way to the, the modern stuff. I think he even has a little section on Dr. Duodna. Um, that's great. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm going to pick up that book. <laughs> we were, you mentioned that there's less, like a, a less degree of change as you go through the clinical trials because you're, you're more refined and you have a better idea what's going on essentially. Uh-huh. Um, what on like a macro scale, cause I, I think getting down into detail might be like too complex a, uh, a question. Like what are the different phases of clinical trials and like when does it kind of like tip between, you know, having like a broad understanding to more having a specific understanding, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah. So, um, there's, there's three major clinical trial stages, but before that there's a discovery stage where basically you're spitballing. Um, and huge companies do this. Small companies do this. Uh, startups usually in their first round of funding are really just an idea. So it's really, there's a disease. We think that maybe if we target this protein or this gene, we'll be able to help this disease. And then comes in, well, how do we test that? Uh, how do we get an assay developed? How do we get, you know, are we going to use um, antibodies? Are we going to use small molecules, etc.? But that's the discovery phase. And then there's the lead optimization phase where it's, okay, we figured out something that worked. Now we have to make sure that, you know, all the other parameters are good. Does it look like it's going to be safe? So you have to test it in animal models. Does it look like it's going to be orally available or do we have to give it through IV infusion? Um, and then once you have that lined up, it's, it's time to dose in your first humans in clinical phase one. And phase one is really um, to test for safety. You just want to make sure, like, you checked all your boxes, crossed all your T's, dotted all your I's, and when you enter into the first human trials, there isn't some major catastrophe. Obviously, you know, if you dose a human and you kill them, which has happened and does happen, uh, you're, you're going to have a very, very difficult, if not impossible, time advancing. Um, so really phase one is just to make sure that kind of stuff doesn't happen. And they usually do it in healthy volunteers. So you're not going straight into people who have anemia or people who have cancer or have weakened immune systems. And then once that passes, it's time to really look at efficacy. So you get a broader audience, 
you want to look at people who actually have the disease you're trying to target, and then you're looking for efficacy. Does it do anything for the disease? But again, uh, phase two is really about safety in the disease setting, but you want to design it so you get hints of efficacy. And maybe, you know, uh, only brunettes respond. Blonde people, for whatever, don't. You would want to note that. So when you go into phase three, you say, oh, we think only brunettes, for whatever reason. Um, and then phase three is usually over 100 patients, depending on the indication and, like, how many other drugs are already in that field. It could be upwards of thousands of patients. But that is the game changer. If you can show efficacy across the board in phase three, there's no safety problems, then you are, you've crossed the largest hurdle and then uh, the next step is basically the FDA saying, okay, you can enter the market. Um, but phase two is really kind of the, the indicator of whether this drug is gonna make it or if there's questions. Um, so there's been, phase two is kind of like where you get rid of things that just aren't gonna work. Most things that just aren't going to work, they show up by phase two. Um, so that's kind of like, for me, phase two is, is really pivotal. Uh, but of course, you can still have surprises that come up in phase three when you get a more heterogeneous uh, population or just, uh, you know, something is was not seen in phase two that just pops up in phase three and it's it's a real concern, but there is a quote and I can't remember who told me it or what the context was, but if you're in phase three and your CEO is the scientist who started the company, that's a bad sign. And that's really because once you pass phase two, uh, you really need to start gearing up as a business rather than a research and development company. Cause now you're getting into like, you're a business now. You're going to be selling a drug. So you have to start looking at the market, um, looking at possible collaborations and deals. And you need someone with experience in that space. I don't know if I agree with it, but it's a, it's a quote that's stuck with me. And I think it's, it's definitely got, uh, it's worth considering. I think the, the lesson or like the, the meaning is, is significant like even if even if maybe it's not necessarily the most uh you know truest thing to be considering you know business when you're in trial three i think that's kind of what it's saying so i think yeah yeah even if it you know it doesn't you know have like the literal thing you can still get some meaning out of it mm -hmm. um i had a question but it popped out of my head when i was listening to your quote because um, that's that's interesting well, okay uh, i remembered it to get to phase two which is like the pivotal kind of like you have a very very good idea how things or a pretty good idea how things are going to go like how much time on on average if there is an average to get to that point like how much time as an investment does it take to go from like one to you know the pre to phase one uh -huh. to phase two to kind of like know hey this is going to work or we're pretty confident on that is there like yeah. a, a typical time or is it just kind of no real um from start to finish from Starting research to getting to the market, people often quote 10 years. Um, I think that's moving more towards eight years. And really, uh, a lot of ideas that get funded into startups are well into 
the R&D phase and pretty much are already at preclinical phase many times, especially if they're coming out of, you know, academic collaborators. So um, that that preclinical phase is getting minimized. Of course, there's exceptions to that. But then really, and it depends on your population size as well, but uh, phase ones can be anywhere from just a month long. If you have a lot of people with the disease, sign up is going to be easy. So the clinical trial is going to be um, quickly done, quickly enrolled. And if you're doing healthy volunteers, obviously it's just uh, as soon as the healthy volunteers are enrolled, that's done. So phase one is usually can be pretty quick. Some companies um, can combine phase one and phase two. So um, like I was talking, the orphan disease designation population is very small. If the company can show some like preclinical stuff that their drug's probably safe or if they have um, enough evidence to show that the drug is probably safe, they can start dosing in patients with the disease and uh, scale up the dose making sure that safety is okay. And then that's basically going to, that's going to count for, uh, the better portion of a phase two. Um, but really if you're starting from ground zero and getting into the results of phase two, you're going to be looking at, um, I'd say minimum four years and maximum, uh, six to seven years. Is there like a typical cost, like a, like you were saying earlier, there that some people think it takes like a billion to get like a drug from point A to point Z to get to mm-hmm. trial two up, uh, yeah, phase two. I mean, at minimum, I would say two hundred million dollars to be at the end of a phase two. That's at minimum. Um, that is a very stringent company. I would say a, a more likely figure is around anywhere from three hundred to. 500 to 600 million. Wow. Um, and that's phase two. You still got to go through phase three. Mm-hmm. Where does, like, you know, maybe a dumb question, like, where's all the money go? Like, where, how does, like, if there's like a pie chart for expenses, like, what, what tends to be the things that really add up? Well, unfortunately, management pay is a decent proportion of those costs. So you're going to see probably around, 10% a company's expenditures are actually going towards paying the top five people of the company. But aside from that, you know, if you're not in the market, it's it's mostly going to be buying equipment, buying reagents, and, and doing the, the studies. Doing animal studies is not cheap. And once you enter into patients, um, the amount of... of uh, personnel and expertise that you're going to be out licensing and, and getting counsel from is also very expensive. And then ultimately, uh, you're going to have to reimburse these patients. And then final costs go to uh, the FDA. So I should know if I want, I should be able to give you a pie chart, but I don't. But I would say about 10% is going to go towards uh, salaries. And, and it could be higher, and that would be, a, you know, as an investor, you, you definitely don't want to see that. But most of 
most of a, a preclinical stage company or even a pre-phase three stage company, almost all that money is going to go to R&D. When it comes to actually getting the money, like what, maybe because uh, I think you're, you're still kind of transitioning into doing that yourself. Is there like a specific, because I hear a lot about like pitch decks and that type of thing that you kind of need to bring to an investor to get them to invest in you. Is there, are there typical things that they tend to look for or is there? Yeah. So I, I, I was researching that quite a bit before I took this position. I haven't gone too far into it, but really in, in all startups, people want to make sure that the team that you have together is solid because you're really, no matter where you go, um, people who are, are throwing their own money, whether it's angel investors or larger funds or even uh, in biotech, a larger pharmaceutical company that wants to you know, fund your research. A lot of these people aren't scientists. So really they're investing in how well you can communicate with them and your relationship with them, regardless of how illogical that might be. If you're presenting stellar data and you're going to cure cancer, if you can't, if you can't personalize with people, especially investors, then chances are it's not going to go very easily. The other thing is that you have a really good understanding of your path forward. So if you just say that, you know, you have this idea, you think you can cure everybody's cancer because of this protein. We figured out this protein causes cancer. If you don't have a very clear, you know, quarterly by quarter or yearly by yearly outline of where you're going, people are just going to take that, that you're not really organized enough to do this. So I think really what you should focus on if you're trying to get into this space is developing your story, both historically, what's been done, how you got to where you are, um, but also organizing the future pathway, get a solid outline of where you want to go, what steps you need, and then really emphasizing how you and your team are completely capable of doing this and then uh, addressing the different possible outcomes. So if something that you intend to work doesn't work, what are you going to do? You can't just abandon it. uh, Come up with a plan B for for these different steps. Um, So I would recommend everyone who wants to get into the space be and, you know, start when you start looking for funding, you have to be confident in where you're at, have a plan, and then be confident in the people that you're with. And I think those are those are probably the most important things. Um, as a scientist, I was kind of disheartened. I, I wanted to hear like, oh, you just have to have stellar data. Um, but I, that's just not how the world of funding works. I, I was, um, I'm kind of the, the same way. I I'm always surprised by how often it's people, regardless of kind of like the data or the, I don't know, like the facts at hand, like it comes down to like how much a person likes you or how much they believe that you can, you know, execute on a certain thing. It always, it's kind of like a, an interesting thing. It it can be a good thing, (laughs) you know, as long as like the person's like really genuine and not like a, like a snake oil salesman, but for sure. Yeah. I was thinking there's the, there's the inverse of that where I've seen companies that don't even have an idea. There's no idea, but they've arranged a team of stellar people that have been in pharmacy or been in biotech forever. And basically they say, we're going to help patients. And th- that group of people 
has no problem getting funding. Wow. So yeah, I think there's a very a very um, hard line between how a scientist thinks and how the world of, of funding and, and finance thinks. And I think that, again, going back to that quote, quote, once you get into phase three, you don't want the scientist as your CEO anymore. I think that really echoes kind of, there is kind of a dichotomy between those two uh, industries. Oh, good. I didn't forget his name. Warren Buffett, he was, he was talking about how when he was, I think when he was just leaving college, he read a book called How to Win Friends and Influence Others because he's kind of like a like a, a shyish guy, if that's a good way to describe it. And he wanted to be sure. a good, you know, an effective leader. So he read the book and he, he, he used it to like more be, be more relatable. And um, he attributes that and probably his really, really big brain to um, his <laughs> success. I don't know why, but like the second quote, I I. I cannot tell you why this popped in my head, but he said that if you follow anyone 500 miles, eventually you'll catch them speeding. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's like for a guy that you always hear really nice things about that, like is really saying something. Yeah. Um, right. I don't know why that's popping in my head, but so it's like even the, even the best of us kind of mess up sometimes. You know, have you, do you watch Shark Tank? I, I don't watch any TV actually. That's probably good for you. You're you're, you're doing <laughs> important things like uh, making the world a better place. But you you, you like kind of understand what the show's about. Yeah, yeah. Is there like a biotech version of that anywhere? Like either a like a magazine where people can kind of see what's coming up, or a website that really aggregates what what's going on in this space. Or like, if you had to stay abreast of all that knowledge, like how how would you go about doing it? Um. So I think uh, I think. You know, if you really, if uh, uh, you're really interested in getting into the biotech space, I think what your most valuable asset would just be reach out to people who are in uh, starting their own biotechs or have started their own biotechs, and just talk to them. Um, I've actually I'm on Twitter a lot, and there's a ton of the community on Twitter for biotech is actually pretty pretty tight knit pretty strong and i've i've just messaged people out of the blue like hey uh i saw you were uh you started your own biotech do you have any pointers and there's people that are going out of their way to um arrange like presentations for me send me all kinds of documents and really get into like nitty-gritty details i think the a lot of the people who are are in that realm or were in that realm, a lot of people are that I've talked to are retired. They really like the environment, especially mm-hmm. the startup stage, and they want to see other people succeed and get into it as well. Uh, so it, it's really supportive. Um, so I would say that that would be a major goal. Try and find someone who maybe not be a, a direct mentor, but just someone that you can throw questions at and is willing to answer. And then also I think uh, there's conferences that are kind of expensive if you don't have some way to get in but you can go to those and you can start talking to people um there's a a group called it's just bio and i forget what it's called bio investment organization or bio investors organization they put out all kinds of publications if you do go google searches you can find some presentations of how investors look at biotech versus how you should as a, a 
leader in your own group look at your biotech. There's a lot of PowerPoint presentations on that. Otherwise, I think, yeah, I'm, I know here there's, there's a, a group called a Bio Incubator, but yeah, other, other than just going and asking them or, you know, getting their contact information, I don't know of anything they put out publicly. Do you uh, have a Twitter handle that you'd want people to like say hello to if they if uh, like follow? Yeah, you? sure. Yeah. Um, so I, one of my hobbies is is investing in biotech, and uh, I do publish some publicly accessible stuff through Seeking Alpha. So I'll just write um, relatively basic outlines of publicly traded companies that you can invest in within the stock market and then release those through the seekingalpha.com. Um, but my Twitter handle is Altum Research. That's A-L-T-U-M Research. And if you just Google that, uh, you'll find the Twitter, you'll find the website, find the Seeking Alpha, mm-hmm. all that stuff. And I'll include those in the show notes as well so people can easily find you. Um, awesome. Or make it easy for them, um, especially with that great content. Like I, I know I'm gonna, I'm probably gonna read everything you've put up tonight later. Cool. Um, you, you said that you don't watch TV, and maybe we'll we'll end on this because you're at work and I, I, you've given me a, a lot of a lot of time to answer a lot of my questions. Uh, that you don't watch TV. Like, what do you do for fun? Like, or is like science just like the like the bee's knees for you? Like, <laughs> so yeah, science is uh, science is my nine to five or actually tends more to be 10 to seven or 10 to eight. But, um, other than that, uh, I do, I brew beer and I paint a lot. And if I'm not doing those, I'm probably researching biotech. Did you, uh, brewing and paint painting? Yeah. Like brewing beer, like in like, uh, yep. Yep. That's neat. Um, and you paint, like, how'd you learn how to do that? Uh, so my dad's a chemist. He's also an artist and my mom's an artist as well. So kind of just by via osmosis, I guess. <laughs> uh, it's, it's all, it's an interesting thing that like Einstein, for instance, where, where people would really think that when they think about Einstein, which is interesting that we think about a physicist a lot. Yeah. That, <laughs> that he would just be like a numbers guy. And he, while he was good mm-hmm. at numbers, he was extremely creative. Like he would he would play the violin like like whenever he had a problem that was kind of like stumping him or you needed to relax, he'd play the violin. And he would he would be so good that he'd actually like he'd go and like be in orchestras and stuff like that. So like it's interesting to see and there's a uh, if you if you want to read a book about about Einstein uh Walter Walter Isaacson, he wrote a really good book about about Einstein. Like, oh man! Like he really covers it, and he just came out with a new book about Leonardo da Vinci, and he talks about like that kind of like duality between art and and science, and how like it it's it's more closely linked. Like they're not, it, you know, it's not two, you know, two halves. There's like one that really fuses well together. So you're right. in good company. Think, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, having a creative outlet definitely one kind of relieves stress, but it also activates, you know. It allows you to, to use different parts of your brain to and not be afraid of, of um, looking at things in a new way, trying things in a new way. That's a good point. I'm, I'm, 
I'm not artistic at all, but I'm trying to learn the, the violin and, and I hope to one day be decent enough that I, I won't like scare cats away. Um, <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, my girlfriend says I'm not that bad, but I, I don't know. I think she's being nice. But the looking, looking kind of like towards the future, either for like new skills or new experiences that you'd really love to have. Like 2018, you know, literally in the, you know, the first month, like what would be, well, like what would make your 2018 like just amazing or like really enriching for you? So I did talk, I think we met uh, online because I'm, I'm trying to start my own biotech mm-hmm. and um, it's for actually a disease I have and I just ordered the actual lab results. Mm-hmm. So um, probably within a month, I'm going to get those data back. And based on the symptoms right now, I'm feeling pretty hopeful about it. So that is that is kind of my uh, my uh, carrot at the end of the stick that I hope I can actually reach out and grab. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, I have uh, the guy I work for at, in academia has actually started to start up companies in biotech space and. Right now, time doesn't permit, but I really want to sit down and talk with him about my step forward for my biotech ideas and stuff. So those are kind of where I'm I'm headed for. And you know, on the side, I, I wouldn't complain if I got some art in a, in a show. Well, I, I think it'd be really interesting to, like, either on, on your Twitter or something like that, like to to like see your art every now and again, along with like the the neat biotech stuff you're finding. I think that. I know, I know, I would enjoy seeing it. I think that, like, just like getting a little bit of both would be really interesting. Yeah, yeah, I like. Uh, I I've thought about adding a little more personal flavor to the to the Altum handle, but we'll see. Well, if if anyone's listening that would really like to see uh, that art, you know, Twitter him. <laughs> what you know, tweet oh, him, yeah. not Twitter. Yeah. And uh, you know, try and encourage you, but. Cool. I, I think uh, you've given me a lot of your time, and uh, you're at work, and I don't want to get you in trouble. So I think we're gonna we're gonna call it. Is there last thoughts or anything? Any uh, last point you'd want us to leave on? Either like a hopeful thing, or a recommended book, or check out my website. Um, no, we already got that. But um, I think uh, I think what I would like to say is. Um, Within biotech, so I, I do this as as like a kind of investor perspective as well as a science perspective. And there's a lot of biotech companies that have gotten hundreds of millions of dollars of funding on really just a very frankly terrible ideas. And I think um, if you are a, a scientist or if you have an idea and you want to get into the biotech space, Really pursue it and get a team, reach out to people, get people together and pursue it because um, I think it's actually easier to get funding than people think as long as you really believe in what you're doing because the people who don't believe in what they're doing are getting funding and we don't want that. So, yeah, I would encourage anyone who is, is you know, has an idea, but they feel like they, they can't do it or they don't know enough to just do it. Reach out, talk to some people, uh, get those first steps going. 
I, I completely agree. I, I, that for some reason jar, jarred like two quotes that hopefully aren't pessimistic. <laughs> one, of, one of them is uh, by, by, by uh, Benjamin Franklin, who says that a lot of people die when they're 25 and are buried, you know, 55 years later. Right, like, yeah. You know, like, you, you don't want that. <laughs> like, And that just right. means, like, like, don't just, like, shut off and, like, like what, what you're saying. Like, you know, live your passion. Like, push push forward on that and, you mm-hmm. know, help out people. And then the second one, and I, I do not remember who said this, that the greatest repository or library of human invention or uh, creativity uh, uh, innovation lies in the grave because uh, so many yeah. people just take it with them thinking they're not good enough or that you know they can't and it's right you know you don't want that either you know if, if just think if you know if, if you have like a one percent chance to make an impact like is it worth mm-hmm. it because you're going to gain so yeah. many experiences, you know, you're going to gain so much, right. even if it and doesn't work out. And then you can keep applying and keep trying. Exactly. On that path, you're going to find uh, another idea and, and it'll be easier to go on that, go on that path. So I want to thank everyone for tuning in. This was John. We're going to have his Twitter, the website, and every, all this stuff. And uh, I want to thank you again for coming out and talking to me. And uh, I, I had a really great time. We, we, we spoke for... Two minutes shy of an hour. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. All right, well then, I'm gonna wish you uh, a good night and. Um... Thank you for listening today. Please subscribe, leave a review, check out our website, learningwithlowell.com, or join my mailing list. I'm here to learn and share what I learn. New episodes every Tuesday, new emails every Monday, and I blog on topics that I find fascinating.